Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this Bible study. We pray, Lord, you'll bless our time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Wednesday, the high temperature in Yakutsk, Russia, was minus 6 degrees Fahrenheit, and it snowed. The low dipped down to a chilly 24 degrees below zero. Whereas in Cozumel, Mexico, the low temp was a pleasant 64. The high under sunny skies was 83. I'd say there was quite a bit of contrast weather-wise between Cozumel and Yakuts this past Wednesday. But that's nothing compared to the contrast that will exist between heaven and earth during the final seven years prior to Jesus' return to planet earth. In Revelation 4, the angels in heaven cry, Holy, holy, holy. At the end of chapter 8, angels on earth cry, Woe, woe, woe. The atmosphere in heaven is dominated with warm praises and sunny fu- a sunny future, whereas on earth the storm and cold of God's fury rages. Well, the fifth angel, he picks up his trumpet and sounds another judgment. Chapter 9 begins. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. In chapter 8, we saw stars or celestial bodies, that is, meteorites and asteroids, fall to the earth. This, though, is a different kind of star. Notice the next line. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. This star, notice, is a him, not an it. This is not a falling projectile, but a fallen person. And from what he holds and by what he does, he seems to be an angel. We know from Isaiah 14, and again in Ezekiel 28, that before Satan sinned, he was an angel. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We also know that Satan led a third of the angels into rebellion. It seems this fallen angel is a demon, perhaps even Satan himself. And he opened the bottomless pit, and spoke, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. This fallen star lifts the lid on hell, and a flume of hot smoke laced with fiery embers emerges. It billows up. Apparently in hell, you don't get a choice. There isn't a non-smoking section. It's smoking. For everybody. And this angel has the key to the bottomless pit. This is the place of eternal torment that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 16 in his story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus died and was comforted in paradise. The rich man died and he went to a place of flame and thirst. Here the demon unlocks this pit of torment where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And it's like opening a Pandora's box full of evil. (coughs) Verse (coughs) 3. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree. But only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads, Or the 144,000 Jewish witnesses we saw in Revelation chapter 7. 
Here, John sees locusts swarming onto the earth. But these are not your run-of-the-mill locusts. As we'll see in the next few verses, certain traits distinguish them. First, normal locusts eat their veggies. They strip the field bare. But these guys, they lay off the greens and they feed on men alone. Second, these locusts aren't stifled by smoke, whereas you contain a normal swarm by fire. Third, these locusts are intelligent and spiritually aware. They know who God has sealed. Fourth, unlike a typical locust, these have stingers in their tails. And fifth, according to Proverbs 30, verse 27, the locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. That's your normal locust. Read ahead, verse 11, and these locusts clearly have a king. These locusts are going to bug the entire earth. Verse 5 says of these creatures, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now, some Bible teachers believe these locusts were the demons who sinned in Noah's day. Genesis suggests that they polluted the human gene pool by having sex with the daughters of men. This perversion was so rampant that God had to wipe out all of humanity and start over with the family of Noah. Jude refers to these demons as the angels who did not keep their proper domain. They crossed forbidden boundaries. These were hardcore felons. And God had to lock them up in a max security. 2 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5 tell us, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Yet here, as the fifth trumpet blows, God unleashes these demons for five months, not to kill, but to torment. It's interesting, the floodwaters in Noah's day covered the earth for five months. This plague of locusts lasts the same duration. These five months, for these five months, men will learn what they should have learned after the flood. Here a pack of perverted demons, driven by lust, are let loose to do what they did before the flood. They've been in lockdown for 4,000 years as their hatred for God and for man has been brewing, has been seething. Imagine releasing every death row inmate in the world, the vilest of criminals, men with no conscience and with nothing to lose. Well, they would still look like a pack of Boy Scouts compared to this devilish gang. This is why it's so naive to talk glibly about enduring the Great Tribulation. This will be a horrific time in history. People will fear going to bed at night. So what if you go into survivalist mode? You hoard your food and stockpile weapons and install a security system. How do you protect yourself against demons? Reminds me of the guy who jumped into a cab. After a while, he tapped the driver on the shoulder to give him directions. But as soon as the driver felt the hand on his shoulder, he lost control. The cabbie swerved off the road. Well, the passenger apologized, but the driver explained, well, this is my first day on the job in a cab. For the last 20 years, I've worked for a funeral home driving a hearse. Hey, it'll also be unnerving. It'll be frightening when these hellish goons tap mankind on its collective shoulder. Verse 6 tells us, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die 
and death will flee from them. These demons will see to it that life is worse than death. Attempted suicides will skyrocket. Folks will want to die, but death takes a holiday. People will blow their brains out, yet refuse to die. They'll walk around like zombies with self-inflicted wounds. The zombie apocalypse will become a reality. John describes these awful demons in verse 7. The shape of the locusts was like, lo- was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. The Renaissance concept of gargoyles and centaurs aren't far off here from John's description. These demons are predators dressed for combat. Their chief purpose is to hurt men for five long months. Let me ask you a serious question. Ever say to another person, I go to hell, or to hell with that guy. Well, after chapter 9, you will want to take that back. Hell and its belching smoke and its locust tormentors are nothing trivial. God's judgment is serious business. Of course, you might not have been so profane. You might have just prayed, Lord, give them what they deserve. But with each trumpet blast, you should think again. Even the hardest prosecutors, the tough-on-crime bunch, seldom have the stomach for judgments this stern. Oh, we like to talk about judgment. We like to talk about justice. But when we see what justice looks like for billions of brazen sinners who shake their fist in God's face, we might have some pity. For me, after reading of mankind's hideous judgments here, I, for one, am not so quick to rush this world into judgment. If a little mercy now allows for a few more folks to avoid this terrible wrath, then my cries for justice can wait a while. Well, verse 11 takes us back to hell. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both names mean the destroyer. And this is how Jesus referred to Satan in John chapter 10, verse 10. The Lord there calls the devil a thief who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. In contrast, it's Jesus who's come that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. Verse 12 tells us, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now this river Euphrates once ran through the Garden of Eden. It fed fed water to the city of Babylon. Yet at the mouth of this river, there is a holding cell, apparently. Under the waters, in the spiritual realm, demons are kept bound. And could there be similar holding cells under the bodies of water all around the earth? Remember, Jesus spoke of the gates, plural, 
of hell. Does hell have multiple gates? Hey, perhaps the Bermuda Triangle in the Caribbean. Maybe the Devil Sea in the South Pacific. Could these account for some, could this account for the mysterious activity that happens in these places? Perhaps these are demon strongholds? It's interesting speculation. Well, certainly these angels are demon inmates. They're the baddest of the bad, and they are very, very angry. Notice, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. That they're once imprisoned and now released implies that they're fallen angels or demons. You remember the pale horse in Revelation 6 verse 8 killed a fourth of the earth's population. Now a third of what's left gets killed. God's judgment is thinning out the rebels. In verse 16, these four angels, they take control of a vast army. We're told now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Wow, 200 million troops is quite an army. Some folks suggest current parallels, that these are the Chinese or maybe some alliance. But that's really not the point. It seems to me we're being told that in the midst of the destruction of the whole world, mankind will be in the mood to fight. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now these horses could be more demons. Or this could be a first century author's description of 21st century weapons in war. Horses with metallic breastplates. Fire flaming from their mouth. Could be F-16 fighter jets. Or maybe Apache helicopters. Demons in control of a modern army. You know, today we worry about terrorists getting their hands on a nuclear bomb. But what about demons in control of sophisticated weaponry and millions of trained soldiers? That's what we seem to have here. Verse 18 gives another death count. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. When an airplane discharges a chemical or a biological weapon, it releases the spray from the tail to avoid harming the pilots in the cockpit. Whatever John sees here does harm from both ends. Now you'd think by verse 20 the survivors would be on their knees. They'd be broken, repentant. Pleading with God for mercy. Ah, but that's not what happens. Notice, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And this is the trouble with sin. It blinds you to your own stubbornness. The antidote is right in front of your face, but you're too proud to take it. Even after all this judgment, haughty men stiffen their neck and resist God's rule. Which brings us breathlessly, 
mercifully to chapter 10. John writes, And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book opened in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Make no mistake about it, this mighty angel has attributes that can only be applied to our Lord Jesus. Jesus has already been identified as the Lion of Judah. He sits on heaven's throne. He is the king of the jungle. Who else but Jesus shouts as when a lion roars? Verse 3, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Here's another set of judgments. Seven thunders. Yet we don't get to hear the thunderclaps. For John tells us, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Obviously, these seven thunders are not for us to know. Verse 5, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, Now realize the impressive sight that we're seeing here. This mighty angel has a rainbow for a crown. He wears a cloud for a robe. His face shines like the sun. His feet are like dual exhaust flamethrowers. And he's got an open book in his hand. This should be familiar to us. In Revelation 5, the lion took the deed to the universe. Jesus holds title to God's creation. Like a lamb, he paid for it with his own blood. Now he's cracked its seals to take possession. The trumpet judgments were the seventh and the final seal. Reminds me of the old man who met the devil one day. One Sunday, Satan walked right into the church. Of course, when he did, everyone scattered. They were jumping over pews, racing out the doors. This was the devil himself. Everybody but this one old fellow. He stayed seated on the front row. No panic at all. Satan shouted at him, Why aren't you scared of me? Don't you know who I am? The old boy shrugged. Why would I be scared of the likes of you? I've lived with your sister for 50 years. (laughs) Well, this world has been wedded to Satan for a long, long time. He's had the run of the place. Satan has had a free hand to spread his mischief. His evil is now firmly embedded in the systems of this world. But all this evil and rebellion is about to come to a close. On the cross, Jesus redeemed the universe from under Satan's sway. Now with the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets, he reposed the planet. Jesus evicts the rebels and takes possession. And he ends up judging everyone who stands in his way. This is what we now see here in verse 5. With one foot on the sea, with one foot on the land, Jesus straddles continents. Like a cowboy on the back of a wild horse, he saddles up a bucking planet. He's going to break it. With one hand, he holds his proof of ownership. And now, with the other hand, he raises it and takes an oath, as in a courtroom. Verse 5. 
He raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be, no, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Hey, only Jesus can promise to finish all the promises. And here the Lord pledges to solve the mystery of the ages, which is this, that there should be delay no longer. Isn't this the great mystery that perplexes us today? Why does God wait to establish his kingdom? Why has he tolerated evil for so long? Why does he listen to continual lies? Why does sin go unpunished? Why has Satan allowed such a long leash? Why does God wait to set the earth in order? Why not now? Well, by this point in the drama, the issue is a mute point. For the delay is now done. The judgment has begun. But what about for John? After this vision, he'll go back from the future to the Isle of Patmos. 2,000 years of inequity and injustice will await him in the church. The Lord Jesus does reveal to John the mystery of his delay, but he does so in the most unusual way. You'd think Jesus would sit down with John and provide him a reasonable argument. Instead, he communicates viscerally, not rationally. He hits John in the gut with truth. He plucks John's heartstrings. You've heard it said, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, that's the strategy that the Lord Jesus uses on John and on us at the end of chapter 10. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me, that is to John again, and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey to your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Here is the revelation realization. John's experience at the end of chapter 10 is the whole point of this book. If you take the revelation as nothing but a futuristic prophecy, you've really missed the point, for it is far more. It's motivation for our lives today. Revelation is more than charts and timelines. It should be a lifestyle. As a kid growing up, one of my favorite candies was Zots. A Zot is a sour, fizzly center encased in a sweet outer shell. If you start out sucking on the sweetness, then after 90 seconds or so, a sour explosion shocks your taste buds. Sots is the ultimate sweet and sour experience until you read the book of Revelation. At first, when John eats this book, it produces a sweet taste in his mouth. But as he digests it, as it gets into his stomach, as he digests its implication implications and tries to stomach what it all means 
In John, the initial sweetness gets replaced with a bitter bite. What tasted like honey goes on to cause a bad case of heartburn. Of course, no one is suggesting that we add ink and paper to our daily diet. John's experience here was a metaphor. And we too need to eat up the revelation. We need to read it. We need to grasp its full implications. Certainly, we should dwell on Jesus. Not just as he once was, but as he now is, as he will be. We need to celebrate his role as the king of the jungle. Jesus will tame the rebellion. He'll evict a usurper. He'll right all wrongs. And initially, this produces a sweet taste in us. Imagine when Jesus kisses away my pain. When my fears finally end in his loving embrace. And the burdens I've carried roll away for the last time. Imagine when he welcomes this weary traveler home. Who among us isn't excited about the second coming of Jesus Christ? But when you mull over what this means for humanity as a whole, even members of your own family in particular, your friends, your acquaintances, your co-workers, then suddenly this truth becomes hard to stomach. It can create a real heartburn. Oh, we're quick to condemn to hell the nameless driver who cuts us off in traffic. But one day, <coughs> one day, Hell will be the reality for people that we know and love. The people who refuse to yield their lives to the authority of Jesus Christ. If you read Revelation, then lay down your Bible and resume your normal activities. Oh, go back to your TV or video game or Pinterest. Then you didn't get it. You understand Revelation when it hits you in the gut. When you realize what's at stake for you and for others. John records his reaction to his sweet and sour experience in verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John, you need to keep on preaching the gospel. It's been said, without tears, the revelation was not written. Neither can it be without tears, can it be understood. God is wanting John to feel what he feels. God takes no pleasure in judgment. His thoughts are also sweet and sour. He loves us, but he hates sin. Realize, no matter how you interpret the four horsemen, the burning mountain, the locusts, the point of it all is this. Jesus will win in the end. He'll eliminate the opposition. That's why we need to bow to Jesus, join his team, right now, and persuade everyone else we can to do the same. Well, in the, next, in the next chapter, we see God's love on display. For even in the midst of mankind's rebellion, God seeks peace. You could say God holds out an olive branch to this wicked world. Literally, he extends two olive branches. Not literal limbs, but lights, two witnesses. Revelation 11 proves that God's love is incurable. You can grieve God, provoke God, anger God, even push God into a corner where he's forced to judge you. But you will never cause God to stop loving you. Events seen in chapter 11 appear in a future temple that's yet to be built. 
In verse 1, John sets the stage. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. The revelation came to John around 95 A.D., long after the Roman legion had destroyed the Jewish temple. John had frequented that temple since he was a tot. He'd offer sacrifices in the temple. In the temple precincts, Jesus had taught and performed miracles. John was shocked when Jesus predicted its destruction. Yet true to his word, the Romans toppled the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. Here John now gets a glimpse of the future, and he sees a new temple. For the last 1,944 years, the Jews have been without a temple. Currently, their sacred site, Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount as it's called, houses several Muslim structures. The most prominent building, the Dome of the Rock, was built in 691 A.D. by Caliph Omar. And for 1,300 years, except for a brief time during the Crusades, the Temple Mount has remained under Islamic control. That is, until today. It was in June 1967, during the Six-Day War, that Israeli paratroopers led by General Moshe Dayan stormed East Jerusalem and took control of the Mount. For the first time, In nearly 2,000 years, the Jews had access to their sacred site. The rebuilding of the Jewish temple was now within the realm of possibility. And yet, sadly, Diane chose to placate the Arabs by assigning the Muslim religious authority administration of the Temple Mount. Today, Jews worship at the Wailing Wall, west of the Mount, and Israeli soldiers patrol the 35-acre platform. But all religious activities on the mount itself are supervised by the Muslims. Over the last 55 years, the Jews' desire to rebuild the temple has intensified. Groups have formed. Preparations have been made. Even actions plotted. Historian Israel Eldad stresses the urgencies Israelis feel toward rebuilding their temple. He writes, From David's liberation of Jerusalem until the construction of the temple by Solomon, only one generation passed. So it is with us. When asked what will become of the mosque, Eldad replied, Who knows? Perhaps an earthquake. I believe a more creative solution might be found. Notice in verse 1, John is told to measure the temple. But he gets further instructions in verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. The temple's outer court was given or will be given to the Gentiles. You know, until recently, it was assumed by Jews and Muslims that the Dome of the Rock was built on top of the stone where the ark sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Today, though, that assumption is being debated. Some archaeologists now believe that the true site was actually 300 yards north of the dome, directly across from the eastern gate. In fact, the Jewish Mishnah said that the high priest standing in the Holy of Holies could actually look through the veil, out the doors, and see the eastern gate. 
Well, when we go to the Temple Mount on our tours to Israel, I always can't wait to get to this little gazebo just northwest of the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims call it the Dome of the Tablets or the Dome of the Spirit, both fitting names for the site of the temple. Under this cupola is a slab of bedrock. For me, this is the location of the Holy of Holies. And if, and if enough Jews reach a similar conclusion, this could figure mightily into future negotiations. This new site puts the Muslim shrine in the temple's outer court. Notice in Revelation 11, the angel tells John to measure the temple, all but the outer court. And why? It'll be given to the Gentiles. Perhaps the rider on the white horse, the world leader who brokers a false peace, will do so by striking a deal allowing for both the Jewish temple and a Muslim mosque to sit on the mount side by side. Well, verse 1 sets the stage. Verse 2 sets the time. Of the Gentiles, mentioned in verse 1, we're told, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, here is the very first mention in Revelation of a timetable. And it harkens back to a famous biblical time frame. Daniel 9 appoints 70 weeks of seven years, or 490 years, for the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. It's an amazing prophecy, really. It predicts 500 years in advance the day Jesus rode his donkey down the Mount of Olives and presented himself as Israel's Messiah. But the prophecy hasn't been completely fulfilled. For it leaves one week, a final seven-year period for the future. It begins when a Roman ruler signs a treaty with Israel. And it concludes with God's final judgment. And in between, at the midpoint of these seven years, at the 42-month mark, events occur that relate to the rebuilt temple. The Roman leader who signed the treaty will break it, and he'll desecrate this Jewish temple. As the Romans of old, he erects an idol in its precincts, a blasphemy. The Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for the last half of these seven years, or for 42 months. The negotiations that allowed the Jews to build their temple will be replaced with policies of oppression. Well, verse 3 tells us, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the 1,260 days is another way to count 42 months or half of seven years. Two witnesses will speak for God in Jerusalem, in the temple, against this rebellion. These two men will literally be God's dynamic duo. Along with the 144,000 witnesses, along with the angels in the heavens, they'll preach God's final offer of salvation. These men are clothed in sackcloth, not Brooks Brothers suits. They oppose all that this materialistic world values. They call the earth to repentance and faith in Jesus, the true Christ. And this draws the ire of the false Christ. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands 
standing before the God of the earth. Here is an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4. There the prophet saw two lamps whose light was fueled by a perpetual flow of olive oil. They drew their oil straight from the trees. In Zechariah, the lamps represented Israel's current leaders at the time, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor. And the olive trees represented the power that fueled these men. Zechariah 4 verse 6, This is the word of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Two men in Zechariah's day, as well as the two witnesses of the last days, hey, as well as all God's witnesses, even today, are empowered by His Holy Spirit. All Christian witnesses fueled by the Holy Spirit. A Spirit-filled person has a source that never runs dry. There's a perpetual spring of love and goodness and peace and joy and power in life running under the surface of their lives. It was true of this dynamic duo. It can be true of you. But verse 5 tells us more. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These are not your ordinary Christian soldiers. I guess you could say these men are special ops. They're in a secret program, Witness Protection. Oftentimes, between the services on Sunday morning, I go to the bathroom and I brush my teeth. I don't want to talk to someone or pray with someone and offend them with my bad breath. But these witnesses defend themselves with bad breath. It's a lethal case of halitosis. They spew fire on their enemies. Understand, these men are more, than, are more like Old Testament prophets than they are New Testament pastors. They're God's last call. They're a warning to the world. And they're a witness to the Jew. Recall, they're in Jerusalem at the temple. Their focus is on Israel. Their ministry has a special appeal to Jews, as we see in verse 6. For these have power to shut heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. If you know the Old Testament, torching enemies and shutting off the rain sounds like Elijah. Changing water to blood and calling up plagues is from Moses' playbook. It's possible that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 will be guest appearances of both Moses and Elijah. And this would be the perfect pair to reach the Jews. Moses represented God's law. Elijah was God's Chief prophet, you recall on Matthew 17, on top of Mount Hermon, Jesus' countenance changed, his face shined, his clothes sparkled, his humanity was peeled back and his glory peeked through. And guess who appeared alongside him? There were two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Of course, there are other theories as to the identity of these men, but who they are is not the point. What's strategic is what they do and why. These are God's last-ditch duo. John 1, verse 1 says of Jesus, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. While on earth, the Jews were Jesus' priority. He came to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. And Jews will also receive His last appeal. These two men will be witnesses to the Jews. 
And what happens next <coughs> in verse 7 is sure to have a sobering effect. We're told when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now here a hellish beast ascends from the bottomless pit. He is the rider on the white horse who brokers the false peace in Revelation 6. He is called the Antichrist. And he puts out a contract on God's two witnesses. For 42 months, this beast has been unable to touch them. But now that their message is delivered, God lifts his witness protection. And they are killed in the streets. Verse 8 tells us, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. These two men will lie in the same streets through which they, men carried the corpse of Jesus. This is God's holy city, Jerusalem. And yet look at its nicknames. Sodom was notorious for immorality and sexual perversion. Egypt was the hotbed for idolatry and spiritual perversion. Jerusalem is holy here in name only. And that's still the case today. One day its streets will run red with innocent blood. And then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. The beast, the self-proclaimed king of Jerusalem, will keep the bodies on ice as an example to everyone who dares to call for repentance and faith. And notice the technology this anticipates. We're told nations will see their dead bodies. Prior to the first satellite television broadcast in 1962, that would be impossible. Now they're CNN Live. In fact, log on to the Wailing Wall webcam, and you'll see a 24-hour live stream already in place. The Antichrist will kill these men, and he'll call it a holiday. In verse 10, the world celebrates an anti-Christmas. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. I once saw a Christmas card that depicted a happy family all sitting around the Christmas tree. It then quoted verse 10, make merry and send gifts to one another. <laughs> the quote was accurate, but the context was all wrong. Here God's servants are murdered. And folks around the world carol, drink eggnog, exchange gifts. It's the anti-Christmas for an anti-Christ world. And here's why the world celebrated. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The faithfulness of two men had tortured the souls of all men. You know, today's world wants to drown out the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. That marriage is only for a man and a woman. That life begins at conception. That the only way to God is through Jesus. That all paths don't lead to God. That the Bible is more important than your opinion. That morality isn't open to any private interpretation. Oh, these positions are hated now. And they will be in the future. They'll cause the death of God's servants. Imagine the Antichrist throwing a party. Oh, the world is tuned in on their sets. 
It's Times Square on New Year's Eve. Everybody's glass is raised. It's time for a toast. When suddenly the camera spins around and focuses on the corpses of these two dead witnesses. Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. The witnesses come to life. Don't be shocked if old Wolf Blitzer swallows his microphone. The world is at the party, hoping to see the apple drop. Instead, God warns them that the hammer is about to fall. And the result? And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Verse 13, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. If you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, you've seen the tight quarters. Imagine the devastation that will occur when the walls crumble and the roofs cave in. Yet this is what it will take for the Jews to be saved. They'll see the two witnesses ascend to heaven. They'll feel the earthquake. In this final seven years, they'll see the Antichrist as the false Christ. And suddenly their error will be obvious to them. They'll embrace Jesus as their true Lord. As a matter of fact, Zechariah 12 verse 10 predicts, They will look on me whom they have pierced, Jesus says. Paul predicts this same thing in Romans 11 verse 26, that in the end... All Israel will be saved. And this event is the turning point. Well, verse 14 tells us, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. A seventh trumpet is about to blow. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord And of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In the Greek language, there is a way to speak of future events in the past tense. So when you hear it, you realize that the person has total certainty of the outcome. Well, this is the language used here in verse 14. Heaven is anticipating a final victory, it's inevitable. His kingdom is about to swallow up all the kingdoms of men. It's a jungle out there, but Jesus is the king of the jungle. And then we're told in verse 16, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. Again, it's not just that Jesus will reign. For he's reigning right now. He has the open scroll in his hand. You see, Jesus did the heavy lifting on the cross. Today, all that's left is to evict the rebels and repo the planet. But don't expect a concession speech from the opposition. Verse 18 tells us, The nations were angry. 
Here's man's problem in a nutshell. People don't like to be told what they can and can't do. They get angry. But man's wrath will never stop God's wrath. Understand, God has a to-do list at the end of the age. Verse 18, And your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You see, friends, before it's over, Jesus judges souls who died without Christ. He rewards God's faithful servants. And then he destroys those whose rebellion caused him to destroy his own creation. Wow. How's that for a full day at the office? That's what Jesus will do at the end of the age. Well, this chapter ends, chapter 11 ends. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. You know, it's really a tale of two temples. A tale of two temples. In the temple on earth, there's chaos and carnage, while all is in order in heaven's temple. The earth has rebuffed God's last-ditch duo. Now the die is cast. God's love is forever, but not His pardon. Reject God long enough, and He'll honor your decision. It's ironic, but mankind's spiritual bankruptcy gets revealed here in this chapter, in chapter 11. How ironic. God's message is love. But the world kills the messengers. No wonder great hail awaits people of this world in more ways than one.